Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Well, hello and welcome to Cross Section, where we have conversations about faith, news and culture. And today I am joined by the one and only Alicia Edmund and the one and only Danny Webster. You are in two different locations. Alyssa, you are in London, I think. That is correct. I'm in the offices in 176, part way in room three. Excellent. Our resource centre in London, about to call our headquarters, not allowed to do that. Uh, and Danny is in the outer reaches. It is Keswick. Yeah, I'm up in the Lake District. If I look out the window, um, I can see mountains. Uh, one mountain I was up yesterday morning. I'm up here for a conference this week. Danny, you escaped from your young children and you decided to get up really early and go and hike up a mountain. Is this true? It is definitely true. It was the, yeah, up here for three days for an event. I had a few hours free on Tuesday morning. So I thought there's a mountain literally on the doorstep. So I'm going to climb it. Snow covered almost, or at least just, just the bottom. There was definitely snow at the top. Impressive, impressive. Well, we are approaching uh, the Advent season. We are almost in December. Uh, we are recording a little earlier in the week. It's Wednesday. Uh, some of the headlines that we probably won't be discussing, but just in passing, were fears over the Pope's health as he cancels his visit to COP28. The Archbishop of Canterbury is shocked that death is seen as expensive, time-consuming and irrelevant. This is off the back of a Theos report about what people want after death. Fascinating reading on that. And the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. is mired in controversy because it is charging for its services. Not just to go and visit the cathedral, because you always had to do that, but actually it's five quid for a seat at the family Christmas service. <laughs> Hard to believe. And I've also just been informed that Harvard has just launched a course on Taylor Swift. Danny, is it true you've already applied for this? That is a vicious and unsubstantiated rumour. <laughs> I learned about it about 30 seconds ago. I haven't had time to fill in my application yet. <laughs> Highly likely that Danny will apply for that. And and last rumour is trans guidance. Uh, there's some commentary in the papers that maybe the trans guidance for schools is coming. If, when it does, we will definitely comment on that. But it is only a rumour at this stage. So we are going to discuss a couple of different stories, but we're going to go first to one that has been grabbing the headlines. The Elgin Marbles. Uh, Elgin, it's a hard G. I did read that much in my research. Some people apparently call them the Elgin and, and try and turn it into gin and tonic. But the Elgin Marbles. Danny, why is this in the news? Why is this controversial? Well, it's in the news this week because the Greek Prime Minister was visiting and due to meet with uh, Rishi Sunak, the British Prime Minister. But the Elgin Marbles are a... They're, they don't look like marbles that you might play with as a kid. They're a set of, I, I honestly thought they were to begin with, like a while ago. It's good um, clarification. But, good. Yes. Um, they are a set of sculptures that were um, brought back to, to the UK or brought, no, no. Very loaded. Richard Jumping about Lord Elgin um, removed them. Uh, from the Parthian temple in the early 19th century. Um, these uh, sculptures, probably two and a half thousand years old, um, and basically they now live in the British Museum. And there's every now and then it crops up that they should be returned to Greece because they were not originally in the UK 
and someone from the UK took them, um, probably without uh, sufficient permission or understanding of what was happening. Uh, and he sold them to the, Lord Elgin sold them to the UK government in 1816. And then they were passed into the trusteeship of the British Museum where they are today. So the controversy was over whether they would be returned, could be returned, whether they would be loaned on a semi-permanent basis, perhaps. Um, and all that blew up the meeting and it meant that uh, Rishi Sunak did not meet with the Greek Prime Minister. It all sounds, I mean, the Greek Prime Minister stated what has always been Greece's view, surely. Is this not all a little bit petty on behalf of the government, Alicia? Is this is this the kind of level that we've descended to? Yes, no. I guess I guess the challenge was, is that from a number 10's point of view, the conversation was meant to be led around migration and conversations of a joint partnership in kind of tackling that and potential returns agreements and, and all of that. And uh, the prime minister, the great prime minister is using an opportunity to kind of go off peace and go off brief and bring a conversation around cultural heritage and what, what they believe is theirs and owns. I think the part that I found interesting from the Greek Prime Minister is the language of that this isn't about or this was the interview with Lauren uh, Laura Koonsberg on Sunday that triggered the, the cancelled meeting was that this isn't about ownership and who owns the Elgin marbles it's about reunification and this idea and this the language of it it belongs to, to Athens, it belongs to its cultural setting, it belongs to its nation and history, and for which way back when in 1800s, uh, a UK kind of ambassador to the Ottoman Empire decided to take and ship them to the UK. So I think there's something about identity and a longing and a clinging to cultural artifacts and saying that they rightly own it I guess the challenge that the the prime minister and particularly the conservative party have had on this is that the chairman of the British Museum is a former chancellor in George Osborne and has to lead on kind of the conversations and the dialogue and says rightfully that he hopes there is a, a, a place for agreement you've got a conservative prime minister in Rishi Sunak that has one view uh, and one direction and then you've also got an another conservative former leader in Lord Ed Basie, who is uh, kind of in charge of the Potholian project, which is all about the returning of these marbles. So there's three conservatives involved in one single story, batting it out on who's right. And yet you've got the Greek prime minister who's saying this, this is about reunification with what is a part of our cultural uh, heritage and legacy. Danny, there's a, there's also a well, there's a legal complexity, and there's an argument being made. Certainly, one of the counter arguments is that more people will get to see them in a global city like London. They're actually more on display and more talked about, and more engaged with culturally. But also, there's a complex little piece of legislation that sort of prevents them being easily returned. Yes, and um, so I think it may be true that more people will see them if they are in London. But that's a pretty rubbish argument because it means that basically the only places that should have the most important cultural artifacts are the biggest cities and the biggest tourist destinations so maybe we should just rationalize all of it across the world and ensure that they're in new york paris london and nowhere else gets to keep any um the the british museum act of 1963 is a interesting little piece of legislation but it sets out who the trustees should be including many appointed by the british government 
Um, but it also puts very strict restrictions on the disposal of any artifacts from before 1850. Um, so that legally, they the UK government would have to change this legislation if they are to permanently give them back. Um, George Osborne, who's already been said, is the chairman of the British Museum, is supposedly in favour of a long-term loan. So they retain in the under the ownership of the British Museum, but they are loaned to Greece for a substantial period of time, perhaps. Um, and that would be one way of getting around uh, this without having to change the law. Uh, but it, it does get complex. And it's whether there's the political will. And then you see articles. There was an article this morning that said, giving away the Elgin marbles would strike at the very foundations of the British Museum. I, I think there's definitely is some overblown rhetoric being used in these arguments. And finally, out of you, what, I mean, why should we care as people of faith about this story? Why did somebody stick it on our agenda? Come on, this is what I'm really pushing yeah. at. What's what? Is there a particular thing you feel you're bringing as a Christian to this conversation that's distinctive? I think one of the interesting things is that that there is a renewed attention on what responsibility does Britain have for actions that it committed in its colonial past, um, both kind of collectively as a as a government, as a state, but also in, in other ways, whether it's individuals or families or other companies and bodies, but like how much should we um, apologize for things that took place in the past? How much should we take action to rectify things that took place in the past? Or do we just say it happened, it's done, and we live with it now? I guess the, the other point that was kind of alluded to is partly what um, the Greek Prime Minister says in the language of reunification and being reunified with their past, with their heritage. What does the Christian angle, the biblical story about our former lives, whether that's in the physical, whether that's in nationhood, whether that's in um, the material possessions, how much should we cling to that? Um, and I guess there's a whole point about a new creation and God redeeming things of the past, but yet looking forward. So I think there's the conversation of identity and what does that look like and, and kind of some of the imperfections of clinging to artifacts that will move from one empire, the Ottoman Empire, uh, to the UK, that the Ottoman Empire in and of itself was also an imperfect empire that was about oppression and expansion and, ex and exploitation. So... I guess it's that reparations meets identity meets colonial legacy conversation for which the Christian story needs to lean into. Well, if we're talking identity and some uh, colonial legacy, that would also take us to the second story we were going to look at, which is uh, Dublin, the riots this week in uh, Dublin. Um, so the basic background to this story was on Thursday afternoon. That'll be nearly a week past as you're listening to this. A man in his 50s uh, started attacking uh, children with a knife outside a primary school in Dublin. Um, ultimately, as I, I, I don't actually, I think there were a couple of children and at least one adult and carer were, uh, two were very, one of the children, one of the carers very seriously injured. Um, the rumours began to swirl about the identity to that of the attacker very quickly. And uh, then people took to the streets in Dublin 
and there were riots in Dublin. Um, they ultimately borrowed the one thing that Northern Ireland is useful for. We sent down two water cannons because um, we have a surplus of those. That's a good thing that, uh, from our background. There you go. Uh, so, but they, the reason was, I mean, they were burning out buses and trams. I mean, it, it, it kicked off at a reasonably uh, substantial level in terms of the kind of street violence and um, and the issues were around migration, immigration in particular. So Dublin has a huge, they've released immigration figures this week in the South. I think they're in the region of 160,000. Um, so you put that in the context of the size of Ireland versus the United Kingdom, and you begin to see our very high numbers in the UK of so over 700,000 would be uh, dwarfed in a proportionate terms by the numbers in Ireland. Massive housing crisis around Dublin in particular. And um, Dublin has taken in a significant number of people from Ukraine, approximately 90,000 in the last year. And that has had a big impact just in terms of housing and um, services and facilities. And there's a feeling that they have been placed largely in more working class areas. And there was a pushback from the working class. Final bit for me was the framing here was from the Garda chief commissioner, that's the police chief in the South, was that this was the far right extremists and a big reaction to that. People like Conor McGregor, the mixed martial art, uh, martial arts fighter, um, kicking in. I mean, real and you know, real intrigue. I think globally in this story, and it is linked. We're going to talk in a few minutes about the hate speech legislation in the south, um, and and how that's going. So big changes in the south. Who wants to come in first and comment on this story before I just keep going on it? Alessia is coming in. Is coming in. I guess my huge fascination with it is because it, as soon as we clicked stop recording on last week's uh, output about Rwanda and migration and immigration and it being the continued, it will be the dividing point both in politics and communities. This burst out uh, in kind of our local backyard, as it were, in terms of what was happening in Dublin. And I guess my surprise was the speed at which the original story, which should be concern and care for the violent attack that took on place on the street, how that had been morphed and twisted and suspected on the person, the kind of the attacker's identity and national heritage as being inverted commas, a foreigner, and how through social media, through the Telegram app, there was this organizing and this rallying of, you know, let's meet in the square at seven o'clock. Let's language that was very derogatory towards foreigners and intention to kill. There was this escalation of violence of we're going to go to that place where the, the original crime took place and we're going to make a stand. And there was banners about Irish lives matter. So moving on to that kind of our identity matters following on from kind of the Black Lives Matter trope. And so I was just fascinated in terms of, again, the conversation around identity and a sense of those who are disenfranchised, don't trust politicians, don't trust um, politics and institutions to care for their immediate needs, how they take power into their own hands and unfortunately escalate and cause chaos uh, on the streets. So I guess that was my my main pull of how the immigration conversation isn't really going to go away. No, and a little bit of context for those who know that Ashling Murphy was a 23-year-old primary school teacher who was killed a year ago. Um, she was out running 3.30 in the afternoon um, and she was killed. Her attacker was convicted earlier in this week. Um, I 
so again, it was a I think somebody from a Slovak background to come into Ireland under the immigration laws um, had a past, and that story had kind of come to prominence as Ashling's either fiance or husband had talked about her death and just the impact of that. So that was kind of very live in the psyche, I would say, down south. Then this attack happened. The word went out about the attacker. It has been, as I understand it, substantiated that this is a, a man, an Algerian man, but he's been in Ireland for 20 years. I mean, he has right to remain. He is an Irish citizen now. And the first person on scene was actually a delivery driver, a Brazilian gentleman who's also now, I think, an Irish citizen. So he used his helmet to fight back. And a Filipino nurse was next on scene. And so the narrative gets way more complex very quickly. Um, but I do think this is also a reflection on a post-Catholic Ireland at this moment, wrestling with where its values and its ethos comes from. Ireland is very famous for its welcome. Its slogan, really, as a country, is Katie Mealy Fulcher, 100,000 welcomes. Hospitality is absolutely critical to Ireland's DNA and psyche, but they're wrestling with a feeling in some quarters of being kind of too foolish, too many people in, in too short a period of time have come from a country that has a history of emigration, of sending people out to other parts of the world, and is now struggling with some of the dynamics of that internally. Danny, do you want to come in on this story? I think... I think the thing that I find interesting is the way uh, different governments of different flavours and perspectives are all struggling to navigate um, issues of global migration and the challenges it poses and how this is causing crises for left-wing governments, right-wing governments, centre governments all across the world. Um, and yet the response to these problems are kind of provoking the opposite side almost to respond um and it feels like um governments aren't able to work out how to how to handle this that that they want to be a welcoming uh country they want to have a welcome to people who are seeking sanctuary and protection or even just seeking a a different place to live and yet when it comes to the consequences of that potentially they're, they're not knowing how to navigate it so um just how much you should uh, put a blame on immigration for different things uh, even in this situation which as you say is much more complex in terms of the people both involved as perpetrators but also as respondents to it um the the conversation about immigration has become so highly charged that it becomes so politicized that as we've said it sparks these not only the riots but the involvement of other people everyone feels like they have something to say and yet I still don't feel like we're actually talking enough about how we're going to handle global migration in the years ahead. And I think finding ways to talk about that, that does take account for, of the places we live and the impact on migration in changing those places, I think we've got a long way to go. And Dublin, I mean, sorry, the south of Ireland, Ireland has a fairly left of centre government and left of centre set of opposition uh, one of our colleagues was suggesting it's potentially the only country in Europe without uh, an elected far right, and we can debate what that means, but certainly very, you know, to, well to the right of centre politician that doesn't have anybody. There is no public figure leading this at the moment, um, and that has its pros and cons. I suppose someone like Conor McGregor is coming in and becoming a spokesperson for it. Um, so there, there are questions around that, and and Ireland has a complex relationship with one of the other conflicts going on at the minute, Israel-Palestine. So Irish nationals were not initially released from Gaza by the Israelis wouldn't allow them out initially because they, they thought Ireland's response was so bad to this conflict. Sinn Féin are asking for the Israeli ambassador to be sent back home. 
Ireland has a very conflicted response to this. Danny, you and I don't entirely agree with this, but the Irish Taoiseach, PM, tweeted on the release of an Irish hostage. Uh, this little girl, a 10-year-old girl who was lost, has now been found. And, I mean, Elon Musk and many other people weighed in, and other governments and CNN were reporting that this was an unbelievable paraphrasing of what had actually happened, being released by a terrorist organisation. I would certainly so, say, yeah, you could comment on that. So my, I was much more charitable uh, in my reading of this. I viewed it as a usage of a biblical metaphor of being lost and then found, which can be applied in any number of situations and doesn't mean that they were literally lost and literally found. This person had been taken hostage by terrorists and was released as part of a hostage deal. I don't think the use of the phrase was seeking to minimise or obscure that. I can't read into his exact motives, but... Yeah, I was definitely more charitable in my reading of it. I think the broader context uh, of what's been happening in Ireland more recently maybe uh, coloured my view of it in, in that sense, because uh, I think there have been challenges. But also, interestingly, he did use a biblical metaphor and then said our prayers are with them in a country that is like avowedly post-Catholic and almost defines itself by being whatever is not Catholic is the thing we will do in this moment. It's had a whole series of referendums recently on key moral or cultural issues and that's really been its defining rallying call. And and it feels like Ireland right now is wrestling with who it is. And that's where I want to turn just to be finished. The story is on the hate speech legislation they have proposed, which many are saying, myself included, is some of the most draconian and wide ranging in that it will not define what hate speech is. It's proposing up to two years in prison for this, even for having this information on your device, even if you've no intention to disseminate it or to use it, it'll be for you to prove why you have it. I mean, this is very close. And in fact, I think over the line into kind of thought speech territory in the South. Um, I know you're not as familiar with the legislation specifically, but we, we mean, we all have collective concerns on hate speech. Alyssa, do you want to come in first on, on this one? Well, I think it's, partly the Irish government and particularly the Minister of Justice and, and the Commissioner wanting to show a sense of leadership. I mean, they've been in the spotlight for how has, how is this on your watch happened? How is it possible that the Garda police were not there in numbers, were not equipped, were not resourced um, in, in, in responding to the first crisis uh, and violent attack that took place to then not uh, responding to um, the violent attacks. And so, their response is, we're going to tackle this, we're going to tackle extremism as we define it and see it through through legislation. We're going to equip the Garda police with kind of, you know, body cams that will be able to detect people. We're going to change the law in such a way that um, kind of clamps down and kind of these online conversations. I hear that they're already investigating some of the tweets that uh, Conor McGregor did put out last week uh, and just myself reading through some of um, what he did say I guess he was more emotive in the moment in using the language Ireland is at war timely after what had happened in terms of these other kind of inverted commas far-right groups calling violence on the streets to today he's now saying actually migration and crime should not be connected so he's been having to wheel back some of his online tweets uh, at the moment but of course hate speech how do you define it how do you lock it up how do you contain it I think the Irish government is wanting to be seen to be taking a lead and responding with this and ultimately is likely to create legislation that is ineffective and clamps down on disagreement uh, and difference in speech that doesn't incite violence uh, or hatred. 
Yeah, so the, the legislation's been on the go for a little bit, but they've accelerated it in light of this. And I think one of the, the biggest concerns is this possession of literature. So, I mean, the UK has hate speech legislation if you're seen to incite and promote violence, and there are already grey areas around that, this, that kind of legislation, sorry. But in Ireland, they're now talking about even possession of literature, which is likely to incite violence. Even if you don't do anything with it, the fact that you are personally potentially reading that and having that on your device is where the shift is beginning to come here, I think, and where they and the Irish are now saying they are absolutely committed to restricting free speech and restricting freedoms for the sake of others. And they're saying, but they'll decide who. And that's why they don't want to define it, because they say, well, that would risk prosecutions. Danny, I'm going to give the last word on this story to you before we go to our last story. Well, I think hate speech is is controversial. I think there are or hate speech legislation. I think on one level, there are places where we understand that speech is reasonably restricted or reasonably comes with consequences. Um, but we also want to tolerate and accept a vast amount of speech that we might not like, we might find offensive. And I think the, the challenge for governments, and we've seen this in the UK, um, both in Westminster and in Scotland, where they are trying to address problems that they are seeing, they end up bringing the threshold down too far um, that ends up risking people who are not seeking to incite violence, are not seeking uh, to incite criminal activity, but actually just expressing views and opinions that others might disagree with, risk getting caught within that. So I, I'm always wary when uh, politicians say they need new and stricter hate speech legislation because while their motives may be valid, actually, what they're going to do in practice may have a far wider reach. And uh, I mean, I was naive to say I was going to give you the last word, Danny, because of course I was going to come back in. <laughs> um, there's a great piece in the Irish Times today talking about that Ireland used to have a committee for evil literature, which was essentially run by the Catholic Church telling the government what should be banned. Uh, and of course, this is a return. And you, if, if you like to those kind of dark times of only 40, 50 years ago when this was going on. And J.K. Rowling made a similar point about her literature. It was evangelicals that were trying to get a ban 20 or 30 years ago around the witchcraft. Now it's the uh, trans community and others trying to have her banned on a different grounds. And it's this constant desire to ban that I, I certainly have real concerns about. And I think we as Christians should have some concerns about because who gets to decide what is evil literature, what is hateful, what is problematic in this moment. And uh, there's every chance that we'll be on the receiving end of that at some point in the future. With that, I want to remind you, you are listening to Cross Section. You can email us on an email address that I may or may not get right, crosssection at eauk.org. Not even close to being right. Here we go. Alessia is going to tell you how you can get in touch with us. Cross.section at eauk.org. But C minus for effort, Peter. See, come on, see, man, it's for accuracy, yeah, for effort and remembering to do this thing. So cross.section at eauk.org. You can also follow Danny and I on social media, Danny Webster and Peter Lennis on social media. You can't follow Alicia because she's far too sensible than to be on social media. So if you want to interact with something that's going on, please do that. Please do get in touch. Please tell us the kind of stories you'd like us to be covering. And if you've comments and feedback, do let us know. We always enjoy listening to them. And every now and again, we even take them seriously. So with that, we go to the last story. Well, Alicia takes all of them seriously. And then she sends me the ones that are problematic for me. Stockton leveling up character. Alessia, why should we be worried about some comments that James cleverly made about the wonderful, beautiful Teesside town of Stockton? 
Well, we should worry about our words in general because there's life and death in the tongue, we are told in the scriptures. And um, yeah, James Calebly, the Home Secretary, newly appointed, a week in post, it's been a busy week for him, um, finds himself in trouble on a different issue that is outside of his brief last week on Thursday in the Commons, in the Chambers, whilst Alex Cunningham, the Labour MP for Stockton North, uh, mentioned and spoke and addressed the Prime Minister saying why is there 34% of children in his constituency living in poverty? James Kelevely was heard saying that it's because it's a poop hole, um, bleep hole. Uh, you can kind of fill in the gaps because I made it very clear with the word poop. Um, but it's more a conversation of and there's kind of outrage in that sense of how is it that a government minister could address the constituency, the people of Stockton North and kind of disregard government policy in addressing regional inequality. I guess the conversation for us as Christians is once we have a pl platform, how do we conduct ourselves in a way that honours the role, uh, honours the individual before us and engage in, in the situation and circumstance. And I guess as an outsider, as an observer, I would say that James Cleverley's point uh, and comment is unfair, unjust, poorly timed, poorly phrased. He's tried to will back and say that that's not what he meant. It was directed at the MP, not the constituency. But in any case, um, he's a government minister that should be defending a platform of addressing regional inequality. And at the moment, it seems like it's all banter to him, at least anyway. Well, I feel duly chastised and I'd like to stress that I take all emails very seriously. And <laughs> <laughs> so uh, no, well, I think absolutely this is goes to kind of character, doesn't it, and how we conduct ourselves in public debate. Uh, Danny, as somebody conducts himself well in public debate, occasionally. Um, I think what's interesting is that I, the the noise and the furore that takes place in Prime Minister's question times in the chamber of the House of Commons basically gets out of hand, and James cleverly said something he shouldn't have. He really shouldn't have said it, um, regardless of which particular version of events you want to believe. Um, but sometimes it can be excused as part of the kind of uh, theatre of politics. And I just don't think that's healthy. I think you can have robust and substantive disagreement in politics without resorting to uh, well, foul language, personal insults, whatever else. Um, and I, I think there's just a there's a challenge that while we may want to robustly engage in situations, we really can and should uh, be careful about what we say. Uh, I don't think there is ever a need to resort to kind of personal insults or demeaning language. And, and I think as Christians, we should we should value our speech really quite highly. Danny, thanks for that. Let's see where you want to come in before I wrap things up. You, you lead us out strong. <laughs> well, you took us there. I mean, I think you're absolutely right to direct us to James 3 and the tongue, um, the tongue with which we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings um, who have been made in God's likeness. And we can see the toxicity of particularly the social media space, but the media space more generally. We are seeing it, I think, on a, on a daily basis in terms of Israel-Palestine. We see it amongst friendships, almost certainly the the way that is presented. I mean, we saw even at start, Dan, at the importance of language, even as you 
introduced that story about the Elgin marbles, just trying to get the phrasing mm. right at times and really wrestling with just using uh, helpful and useful and accurate phrasing. But I think the Israel-Palestine conflict has brought that to our screens constantly, no matter what format we're getting that. Uh, we are seeing the language around that is often dehumanizing and degrading. And I absolute challenge for us as Christians in this moment of the Advent as we come into that season, as we come close to the 1st of December, Advent Sunday coming this Sunday, when God took on human flesh, the divine inner skin, uh, we remember uh, and are, are reminded constantly of the importance of what it is to be human in this moment. Um, something I'm obviously deeply passionate about. But then, as James reminds us in this moment, how we use our tongues in this moment. And for us as Christians, the bar is higher. That's just the reality. Um, and I'm nervous to say it, but, you know, challenge us on social media if you see us and challenge us in things that we are saying. We are holding ourselves to a higher standard because that's what James says. If we put ourselves out there, if we are teachers and if we are people who are trying to lead others in this moment, we have to use our tongues wisely because it is something that is, always, it's a it's fire, is what he says. Like it is fire in our bodies and it can corrupt the whole body if we're not really careful. So our challenge for all of us is to continue to speak on these stories um, to do the conversations about faith, news, and culture, but to do them in a way that is honoring and a way that is edifying. That doesn't mean you can't call people out. That doesn't mean we can't engage robustly. That doesn't mean there aren't moments for that kind of prophetic pushback, but it still needs to be done in a way that is always, always leading people towards Jesus. So there's our challenge this week on social media for each of you. Uh, call Danny out in particular if he strays the wrong side of that. And uh, with that, we'll wrap up. We will look forward to seeing you again next week. Be blessed. Hi, it's Peter here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Cross Section. If you liked it, can I encourage you to click subscribe, review the podcast, share the episode on social media or tell your friends so that they can enjoy it too. And don't forget, you can email us at cross.section at eauk.org. See you next time.